Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free. There are other models that show how a spirituality is primarily comprised of purpose and how it embodies the beliefs, values, and truths best suited for achieving that purpose. For example, take Benedictine spirituality. It grew out of the the way of life taught by St. Benedict. Franciscan spirituality came from the legacy of St. Francis. The Jesuits and Dominicans also developed distinctive approaches to prayer and spiritual exercises in keeping with the insights and devotional practices of St. Ignatius and St. Dominic. If we look at history, we see how each of these approaches to the practical art of Christian living came into being. To illustrate, St. Benedict was a young man when the decadent Roman Empire began to disintegrate under the barbarian inversions from the, uh, invasions from the north. It was a time of chaos. Benedict, at his studies in Rome, was upset by the disorderly behavior of his fellow students. Fearful that he himself might fall, and without taking leave of anyone, he fled to the mountains of Subiaco. In later years, Benedict's rule, a model of an ordered and purposeful life, gave rise to countless monasteries that played a decisive role in preserving civilization in Western Europe. Uh, actually, at one time, I read somewhere that there were, at one time there were 30,000 Benedictine monasteries in Europe. Little clusters of Christians living and, and showing people how to live, how to farm, how to make beer, how to do all kinds of things that people needed to help make their lives more humane, a better life, and to bring God into their lives. St. Francis appeared on the scene at a time when wealth and materialism were on the rise and when respect for human dignity was in serious decline. His life of simplicity, poverty, and peace, his kind and romantic nature, his literal imitation of Christ, all taken together, restored dignity and hope to the poor and stood as, as an embarrassing indictment of the rich. As a witness. The same kind of providential intervention can be seen in the life of St. Ignatius. Born in 1521, Ignatius lived through the early turbulence of the Reformation. His most famous work, The Spiritual Exercises, was the ideal, the perfect response to the church's need for radical renewal at that time. This was also a time when the office of the Pope was not held in very high regard. In fact, it was not respected at all. But Ignatius added his fourth vow, obedience to the Holy Father. This was more than an expression of loyalty to the vicar of Christ or an empty gesture. It was a reminder of the obedience we owe to persons with divine authority. And it was prophetic recognition of the role to be played by Rome in preserving the unity of the universal church. Now, in trying to define a spirituality based on the Second Vatican Council, we must first determine what urgent need facing humanity was it supposed to meet, just like Benedict and Francis and Ignatius and Dominic and all these guys came up with a spirituality that addressed the need of the time. 
So based on that, uh, what we can, we can make an assessment that looks into what kind of spirituality is best need, suited to meet whatever this need is. Now here's a typical definition of Christianity, of Christian spirituality, pardon me, taken from the New Catholic Encyclopedia. This is a typical definition. Christian spirituality begins when God's word is accepted in faith. It manifests itself in the expression and the development of the love of God in prayer and action. It is the subjective assimilation and living in charity of the objective theological realities of revelation. It's a very orthodox definition. However, you will notice that it says nothing about responding to some urgent need. (laughs) Nor does it allude in any way to the identity and the purpose of the church. In view of this definition, we might still regard the church as an institution. However, the Second Vatican Council described the church as the people of God with a mission, with a mission of reconciling humankind with God and with one another. The title, People of God, threw a new light on the laity. Moreover, in keeping with its opening and closing statements, the Council's basic agenda was about human dignity, human rights, human solidarity, justice and peace, all aspects of life where the laity take on pivotal importance by reason of the fact that they are positioned to take up leading roles in all of these concerns. This perspective carried comprehensive change for the church, none more so than those dealing with the laity and the Holy Spirit. So if we're looking for the spirituality of Vatican II, we would certainly have to include laity and the Holy Spirit. In terms of meeting some need, in stating its agenda, the Council took note of the unspeakable tragedies that have dogged the heels of human progress in modern history, making the point that secular efforts on their own have proven to be unequal to the task of safeguarding the most critical interests of humanity. In keeping with this truth, the Council implicitly reaffirmed the empirical findings of the old law, unless the Lord build the house, in vain do the builders labor. Recognizing the preeminent role of the Holy Spirit in building up and empowering the early Christian church, the Council laid out contemporaneous teaching on the indispensable role of the Holy Spirit in the life and mission of the church in the modern world. We can say that the true genius of the council is in combining laity and the Holy Spirit as the answer to the most pervasive, persistent, and pressing problems that diminish and imperil humanity. As a basis for operational planning, this vision of the union of laity and the Holy Spirit is applicable across the board. It is entirely consistent with the church's nature and purpose, and it has relevance to every major topic addressed by the council. These two aspects of the church's life and activity receive such extensive treatment in the council's deliberations that this particular ecumenical council has often been referred to as the council of the Holy Spirit and the laity. Interrelated themes on which the council's promise was to be based. The council's teaching about the laity and the Holy Spirit was built on what is known as the universal call to holiness. Now, for people interested in novelty, self-serving change, 
and greater recognition from the world, whew, that didn't sound very exciting. You know, all the guys, all the experts that looked at Vatican II, oh, this is what this is, Holy Spirit and the Lady? Oh, no, no, no. And now, actually, according to the activist view, empowering the laity had less to do with mission or Holy Spirit than with a shift in power, than with running the church. In short, in their judgment, people didn't need conversion, only the church needed change. A do-over aimed more at status than service. (laughs) That's the way it is. Now, on December 8th, 1975, the 10th anniversary of the Second Vatican Council, Pope Paul VI issued his apostolic exhortation on evangelization in the modern world. This encyclical, incidentally, was based on the findings of the 1974 Synod of Bishops, and it represents a consensus view on the intent and the content of the Council. Quoting the Synod, the Pope wrote, We wish to confirm once more that the task of evangelizing all people constitutes the essential mission of the church. He goes on to state that evangelizing evangelizing is, in fact, the grace and vocation proper to the church, her deepest identity. She exists in order to evangelize. Pope Paul VI then describes the nature and dynamic of this founding characteristic, stating, first of all, that anyone who rereads in the New Testament the origins of the church, anyone who follows her history step by step and watches her live and act, sees that she is linked to evangelization in her most intimate being. In short, it has more to do with what the church is than what the church does. This becomes more apparent as the Pope explains how proclaiming the good news is aimed at bringing about interior change or conversion in the individual, and transforming the culture and cultures of the world. Seeking to convert solely through the divine power of the message she proclaims, both the personal and collective consciences of people, the activities in which they engage, and the lives and concrete milieu which are theirs. So if we look at this, the words of the Pope, as applied to the individual, They refer to a spirituality. That's what a spirituality is about. As applied to society, they refer to culture, which is the topic for our next reflection. But in both cases, the key concept is purpose. We tend to overlook its significance. This whole idea of purpose, the why, is is extremely important. Now, especially in its function as what we call a formal cause. You, you have like a material cause and you have a formal cause, you have motivation, you have goals, and all these things is like uh, when, when we had the, when you did the Baltimore Catechism, the question was, and it was a real good about spirituality, why did God make me? Why did God make me? That's purpose. And the answer was, God made us to know him, to love him, to serve him, to be happy here and to be happy forever. Now, that's all about purpose. But it doesn't say anything about the identity or purpose of the church, nor does it say anything about why did God make me in terms of motivation. It tells the purpose of the goal, and I can deduce from that that God must love me, but it doesn't state that explicitly. And that's where we lose sight of this formal cause in how purpose mediates direction 
unification, relationships, and priorities. When you're talking about a cause, you provide a basis for evaluation, for assessment, to see whether or not you're going in the right direction. But if you don't have a, pay, a purpose, or if it isn't clear, or if it's not one that unifies people, you don't have any of that. You just have a lot of people doing what they think they should do. And it is when you have this clear sense of purpose that you develop a culture and a shared spirituality. We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. Every year on the next to last Sunday of October, World Mission Sunday, Catholics of the World United Mass to recommit ourselves to our vocation as missionaries. I've celebrated World Mission Sunday in the missions. How beautiful to witness the missionary spirit of our brothers and sisters as they offer prayers and service so that others may come to know Jesus. In a world where so much divides us, World Mission Sunday rejoices in our unity as missionaries. It's a lesson from the missions. Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyinmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this One Family in Mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio Presents. Now, it, it, it really doesn't take a lot of reflection to see how purpose figures in building a faith community and in preparing its members for mission. So that if we're looking for uh, the spirituality of Vatican II, that's what we have to look for. Not only in terms of that formal cause, but also in terms of motivation. The purpose also mediates this reason for being. And when we started out and talked about the people that went to see passion, the Passion of the Christ, they're looking for a way to find fulfillment and meaning and purpose in their lives. So putting the two concepts together, the goals and the motivation, we can describe a Vatican II spirituality as apostolic. It's an apostolic spirituality. And what does that mean? It means that this spirituality represents us, first of all, as members of the mystical body of Christ with the same mission that Jesus had. And if we have that as our understanding, as the basis, then we have to say, well, we are the people of God and we have an awareness of being sent, an awareness of a mission. And we know that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, not only in accepting the good news of God's love, but in preparing ourselves to bring that good news to others. As Paul VI clearly says, the real test of whether or not we are evangelized is whether we are prepared or enabled to evangelize others. <laughs> what I used to say when I gave mission appeals was, a faith not worth sharing isn't worth having. And that's the truth. So we, we have to say, okay, why are we, what's this all about? We are united in Jesus in all that we are and do as glorifiers of God our Father. So with that as, as background, then we, we come to some other issues or some, some aspects of uh, why the church was before and after Vatican II. 
Before it was much more institutional. After it's missionary. Those are two different, you know, it's the same church, but it's a different perspective, a different self-image, a different way of thinking about who we are and what we are and why we're supposed to do what we're going to do. And before, the, before Vatican II, we weren't really given to dialogue. You know, one of the first, the first things you learn about being missionaries, you have to listen. And if you don't really listen to the people you're trying to share the gospel with, you can't give a meaningful interpretation of the gospel. I've, I've, I've been there and I've read books by quite a few, like a, the Marino missionary who uh, really, in Africa, I forget his name now, he wrote a wonderful book about he just had to live with those people before he came to understand how to communicate with them. And in my own experience, I, I was trying to figure out different, how do you express the, the, the sense of God's providence in the language of the people of Papua New Guinea? We say God's providence. Well, I don't even know how well we understand that term. But, you know, when, when uh, the, uh, the, the Native Americans, they said that God was the everywhere person. And that was the everywhere person means that God's everywhere and that we live in his presence. And, but providence is, is a, uh, you know, that's a, that's a real important uh, concept for us. And many times we just assume that everybody knows what providence is. And, and we get into even the Calvinistic, you know, predestination and all these other things. <laughs> but that providence is God's love encompasses us at every moment. And that we should live in an awareness of God's love. But this requires dialogue. It can't just be, I'm going to preach and tell you what everything is. I've got to listen. And we have to listen. And also, uh, the, the whole idea of the magisterium, which is, is a very important, this is how the church has survived for 2,000 years. But the magisterium is not whether or not we have a magisterium, but how it operates. And there have been changes there, Ser real good changes. And we've gotten away, to some extent, to our either-or thinking. Our founder, Jules Chevalier, was one who was very much on this. He, he, he didn't have this either-or thinking. Either you are, like for example, either you go and work in the missions or you stay home and work in the, the established church. No, he said these two, each one, is, it reinforces the other. If you don't have any missions, your church at home is dead. But if you do have missions, they must somehow be in contact with the established church to give it life and to give it a purpose and to give people meaning. So you can't just think either I'm going to be a missionary or I'm going to stay at home. You've got to think the church is universal. The church is missionary and it is, it is there for everyone around the globe. And that either-or thinking in many, many ways has, has caused a, a lot of divisive uh, attitudes in, in the church. And there is, uh, if you read, Car well, at this time Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger and Walter Cardinal Casper, you will find that they really understood the notion of collegiality in terms of, of being apostolic, that uh, that we we if unless we develop this collegial sense of collaborative uh, interest and intent, you know, we are not going to do what we have to do to bring the world to Christ. I, I guess you know this this whole idea of how mission and spirituality are are you know related one to another. I, I'll tell you a story about our founder Jules Chevalier. This can maybe explain this uh, better. Once uh, Father Chevalier received permission to form his new religious community, 
he found himself faced with a lot of obstacles, trials, and practical demands that kept him very busy. So he didn't have time, really, to sit down and draw up constitutions. But meanwhile, Pope Pius IX, who was a very close friend of our, our founder, Pius IX, I learned a lot about Pius IX. First, I didn't think too much of him, but tell you what, that guy did something you can't believe. I mean, his, his history is worth reading. Well, anyhow, Pope Pius IX wanted to make sure that he would have the privilege of bestowing papal approvement, approval on the MSC Constitution and on its foundation. So he kept after Father Chevalier, telling him, draw up this constitution and for the new society and submit it to the Sacred Congregation for Religious for Approval so that Pius IX could issue the papal decree acknowledging this new foundation. Well, with his many practical worries, it took Father Chevalier quite some time to get around to this task. He checked on the constitutions of various religious orders, including the Jesuits, and he finally came up with a version of his own. And among other remarks that he had made was, you can allow other people to uh, outdo you in intelligence, but not in Christian charity and brotherly love. <laughs> that was his, he quoted the, he quoted the uh, imitation of Christ, which is an amenishiri uh, et pronihilo reputari, means love to be unknown and treated as nothing. And one of our, our present uh, superior general says, well, that's better than being known and esteemed as nothing. <laughs> but our founder was, he, he really was right on. He knew what he was doing. Well, anyhow, after he came up with this version of his own, he sent it off to, to the Roman Curia or the, the Castri or whatever it was, and it was returned. The, the Curia or these people over there wanted Father Chevalier to rewrite the purpose of the congregation, inserting what amounted to a phrase required of all religious orders, namely, that the society was founded so its members could obtain the salvation of their souls by the pursuit of perfection under the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Well, Father Chevalier wrote back and said, wait, the, point, the purpose of the society was to bring all people to a knowledge of a loving God. That's why it wasn't to, to have these people you know, pursue, it was to bring people to know about God who is love. Now, of course, in so doing, if you're going to uh, bring people to the knowledge and acceptance of a loving God, one might reasonably expect that you'd save your own soul. But Rome insisted that he put that customary phrase in there about the vows and pursuit of perfection. Even though the primary purpose and mission of the new community was, as I said, to make God's love known everywhere. It wasn't, uh, he, he had to insert that phrase. And it was not until our constitutions were revised after the Second Vatican Council, and this was in 1983, that the obligatory phrase could be revised and the founder's original intent given the emphasis it deserved. And this is how it reads in, in our communion as brothers. We live our faith in the compassionate love of the Lord at the same time, we are sent into the world to proclaim the good news of the love and kindness of God our Savior and to bear witness to it in the whole of our lives. Now, that reads much more like what he had in mind. Now, more, now just to, so you understand how this, this is not, you know, <laughs> these are the way things are, you know, these are serious things. And in, in, uh, more recently, in address to the Congregation for the Evangelization of Peoples, CEP, Friday, November 20th, 1998, Pope John Paul II acknowledged that, quote, 
Mission clearly does not consist of and is not exhausted or realized in mere organizational activity, but is closely connected with the universal call, vocation, call to holiness. Now, what does that mean? Well, what he's doing here is the Pope ties the pursuit of holiness to the purpose of mission. At this and other points in the translation, the sentence construction is rather cumbersome and the meaning is not well served. I'll read the translation first and then rephrase the content to bring out the meaning. The Pope is quoting his recent letter written on the consecrated life of religious. And here's what he wrote. To tend toward holiness. This is, in summary, the program of every consecrated life leaving everything behind for the sake of Christ, preferring him above all things in order to share fully in his paschal mystery. This is what it means to follow Christ in a way that it can involve and transform people. The purpose of mission in this sentence is to involve and transform people. You're not just in the pursuit of your own holiness. You must somehow involve and transform people. That purpose can be achieved only if a person tends toward holiness. Now, in between these two phrases, the Pope says that the pursuit of holiness is, in summary, the program of every consecrated life, that it entails leaving everything behind for the sake of Christ, preferring him above all things, in order to share fully in Christ's paschal mystery. The link that aligns the, the Pope's view with that of our founder is found in these words, this is what it means to follow Christ in mission. So I, to kind of sum up, I think what I, what I would like to do is just repeat what I said last week or the, the last time we talked, that if you want to see this spirituality of Vatican II, it's neither liberal nor conservative, it's Christian humanism. It is a way of understanding that Christ came and the most important or uh, what would you say the, the greatest revelation that God makes is that he created us as humans. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.